Hello. Welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and on this episode, I'm talking with Father James Martin, who is an American Jesuit priest, writer, and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine, America. We're going to be talking about Reverend Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice, perhaps the most ridiculous clergyman in all of English literature. But is Mr. Collins as bad as he first appears? And is he entirely to blame for his foibles and flaws? Let's see what a modern clergyman has to say. Here's our conversation. First of all, Father Martin, let's tackle the hard question. The Reverend Mr. Collins is one of the most ridiculous characters in all of Jane Austen. This is how Austen describes William Collins. He is, she observes, a mixture of pride and obsequiousness, self-importance and humility. And he's not exactly bad, this is me talking, but he does seem to be more impressed with himself than attuned to the needs of others. And to be clear, Austin doesn't hate clergymen. After all, her own beloved father was a clergyman and by all accounts, a good one. She does depict some good clergymen in others of her novels. Yet people love to hate Mr. Collins. And she clearly has some insight into the way even a call to the religious life can be ill-founded, whether by one's own personal flaws or by flawed social norms. So as a man of the cloth yourself, what goes through your mind when you read such a prickly account of a representative of your profession? Well, uh, first of all, I'm not a Jane, I'm a Jane Austen fan, but not a Jane Austen expert. You know, it's a certain type, I would say. Obviously, it grades a little bit when you're a clergyman and you see a clergyman who's portrayed in, in such a light. But I mean, I'm a fan of Jane Austen and I would imagine she probably knew clergymen like that, you know, thanks to her father or maybe a local vicar. Or something, but uh, I find also, especially in film versions of it, it comes across. It comes across just awful on the printed page. For some reason, it's a little easier to take because you don't see the kind of you know the physical attributes of the person. But I certainly wouldn't go to him for any sort of spiritual counseling. That's for sure. You know, and it was also a profession back then, right? I mean, the old saw that you know one son got the land, the other son went to the military, the other son went into the clergy. Another son might have gone to, quote unquote, the colonies. So I think it was, you know, it was also seen as a profession back then. Well, I, I appreciate that you brought up the point that his portrayal in the novel itself is very different from many of the films. What else would you observe just in general about Mr. Collins' character, especially given the setting of his time? What do you, you know, what strikes you the most about him? That he doesn't seem particularly spiritual. That's the thing that I'm always surprised by. He's a very, I, he, I wouldn't say avaricious, but he's very worldly, mm. right? He's, he's, he's interested in who's up, who's down, money, of course, uh, appearance, status, as you know, very important in Jane Austen's book. But he doesn't particularly seem like someone who is set apart from the world. I mean, obviously, you have to be in the world a little bit. That sort of struck me as a little odd. And he, he really, unless I'm mistaken, he really refers to the Bible, scripture. He seems like he's sort of more out for his own advancement, I would say. 
you know, sometimes like the religious authorities that Jesus critiques in the Gospels, you know, like kind of the Pharisees, he seems decidedly less spiritual than one would hope from a spiritual person. No, I think you're exactly right. And it goes back to what you said earlier, that this position that he held was really largely just a profession, one that was expected of male sons born in a certain order. And that was just uh, the convention of the times, which, of course, we know Austin was brilliantly satirizing. Yeah. And I I noticed in other books and and films about that period that people will say, you know, to like one of the sons or, you know, a a man in college or university, you know, what do you think you're doing? Oh, I may, I may join the clergy or I may, you know, take the collar or something, you know, as if it, again, as you were saying, as if it's just another profession and you sometimes wonder, do these people have any sort of vocation? Are they attracted to that? Or is it just, it's another sort of box to tick, I guess. You are exactly right. And I think when we read these accounts today, we think it seems very different. But I think what the novel invites us to do is to ask ourselves, well, how do we replicate that in our own ways, in our own culture? Because I think we do. You know, I teach in a seminary. And so I think I encounter people for whom it might be just expected that because they are a Christian or because they are a certain denomination, because they are a young man on fire for the Lord, that this is what they should do when there may be other options and callings in front of them that are hard to consider within a certain cultural climate. Yeah. And I would say if they're on fire for the Lord, that's fantastic. But if they're doing it just as a a sort of a step up, right? In the Catholic church, we talk about clericalism, which Francis, Pope Francis has really taken aim at, which is this idea that you're you're doing it for prestige or status rather than helping people. So I, I, I do find him a fascinating character that, I mean, in a sense, you could take off his collar and he could be anybody else. I mean, he could be another man in, in search of a fortune or, you know, highborn person or son of son of the gentry. And it's almost as if, you know, the, the collar is just sort of this accoutrement that he, he puts on because of his job. For him, it seems more of a career and less of a vocation. Let's put it that way. That's well put. And I really like how you described how he would be really like many other regular gentlemen of the time if he took off the collar, which should help us to understand him more from a human level, but I think also is part of Austin's indictment against him. He is just a regular person and maybe he was not called to that role, as as you point out. And also, ironically, I mean, and compared to the other characters, I think he's also, he's kind of a less of a person. I mean, I, I think you see him in terms of, I mean, she, as you know, I mean, it's very interested in kind of the moral life and making decisions and, you know, the right thing to do, obviously. And he he, he kind of suffers in comparison, you know, in terms of his morality. He's, he's very shallow, climbing, concerned with appearances, again, and who's up and who's down. And I think suffers in comparison to some of the other characters. Well, this actually goes so neatly and naturally into my next question, which we're going to really kind of dig deeply here, because I want to talk about this difference between personal or character flaws and social ones, because I think they can reinforce one another or maybe mitigate against one another, depending on the circumstances. So as a satirist, Austin, we know, mocks individual personal vices and follies, as well as the social ones of her times. And Collins is clearly, as as the novel itself says, obsequious. He's prideful. He's self-seeking. He's even, I think we could say, a little dim-witted. Yeah. Yet he also lives in this society built on the rewards of land, wealth, and power. And Collins depends on the wealth of others, and in particular, his patron, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And he builds his identity 
on the respect that is automatically conferred to him simply by virtue of his clerical office. Yet at the same time, his sins, as you've already pointed out, are, are relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. I mean, he's, yes, he's a self-important prig looking for a wife with a little bit of wealth and money, but that was the norm for these times. But all of this is to say that I think sometimes bad people are created, or at least their immorality is amplified by bad systems. And you are a Catholic priest. I am a Southern Baptist seminary professor. I think we both know the problem of bad systems pretty well. Mm. And so this is a big question, but is there anything we can learn from Austin's satire of this mildly corrupted clergyman to help us think about corruption and abuse in the church today? What a great question. Honestly, I, I've, I've really been asked as, as thoughtful a question. I'm, I'm being serious because I think what happens, it's such a great question. I think what, what enables us to look at our own society is that we can see easily how Reverend Collins is kind of a creature of his society. So that, that's a great way of looking at it. And by reading the book, we say, all right, well, this, is, this was the way it was back then. He had this patron. He had these benefices from the parish. It's, a, it's an occupation, not necessarily a vocation. And you can see how that would play into his probably his natural tendencies. Okay. So we can see that because it's at a distance. I think what it does is it helps us to say, now, what about today? What social structures today contribute to not just the clergy, but everybody, you know, living out these sinful patterns. You know, in Catholic social teaching, we call that social sin, right? Or structures of sin. So they're kind of sinful patterns baked into the society. I mean, a simple one would be the emphasis on money, right? And look, I'm a capitalist. I went to the Wharton School of Business. I think capitalism is wonderful, but it's not perfect. And it can, if taken to the extreme, you know, uh, lead people to be greedy and selfish, right? I mean, that's the terms of Adam Smith and the invisible hand, you know, a reference from around Jane Austen's time. But the point is that can the structures and can the system actually contribute to people's individual sinfulness? And can people's participation in that system kind of corrupt them a little bit? And I think your, your point is really brilliant because we can see that in Jane Austen. I think it's, it's not as threatening because we look back on Regency England and we say, oh, that was, that was terrible. And look at Mr. Collins, he's participating in this. It's not as threatening. Now, if that were a novel today and the author were making the same point, it would be a little more threatening. But I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it enables us to see it not only back then, but to invite us to see it and to question how might those social sinful structures be affecting people today? Yeah. And I mean, this is the gift of all literature. I think that it helps us to see beyond our own time and place by looking through the lens of a different time and place. You know, it says Emily Dickinson says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Mm -hmm. um, that's what Austin is doing. And I think in this particular moment where the church in general is dealing with so much mm. the revelation, I think, of corruption and abuse that mm -hmm. has been going on all along. This is a, a gift that we have. And so in light of, again, the show isn't about those things in the church, but still when we read Austin and we encounter a character like Collins, or even when we just encounter characters like that or worse in our own lives, in our own churches, I want to ask even a bigger question of you. Despite all the failures, all the abuses, and all the corruption in the church, why do we stay? Why should we stay? Why do you stay? Why do I stay? Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I speak theologically. I'm baptized. 
And so I'm a, I'm a member of the church. I believe that God called me into the church, my baptism, and that's irrevocable. And I really take that sacrament seriously. That's probably the most important reason I'm baptized. And the second reason is that, you know, it's my family. I could no more leave the church than I would leave my family. And my family's not perfect either. And the church is certainly not perfect. And the church has always been imperfect. And that's not an excuse, but that's, that's just history. And I think that's probably the third reason. I think we need to recognize that the church is always going to be, because it's made up of human people. I mean, it's divinely instituted, of course, you know, by Jesus, but it's made up of human beings who are sinful often, you know, maybe most of the time. And I think we also can't choose what time we're born in into the church. I mean, the, the biggest story, I think, in the Catholic church, other than maybe Pope Francis, you know, is the sex abuse crisis. And that's something I've had to deal with you know, as a priest since it broke in, I mean, earlier in the 90s, but, you know, in earnest in, in 2001, 2002 in Boston. But I, I never think of leaving. I mean, I think it's difficult, but I never think of leaving. It's like your family, but it's mainly baptism. Jesus called me into this church, and so I'm sticking around. And I've also, one more thing, as a priest and as a Jesuit, I've, I've also made promises to stay and vows. That's so powerful. And I thank you for being that transparent and honest. And, you know, you're Catholic. And as I said, I'm Baptist and baptism is one of the reasons why I stay too. So That's we right. have that in common. <laughs> I would hope that a Baptist thinks <laughs> baptism is important. Right? Absolutely. Right. So, you know, we are having this conversation just days before Christmas Mm. and Christmas is perhaps one of the best reminders of why we stay. Mm -hmm. It's what it's all about. And despite the follies and sins that Austin clearly saw in her own church tradition, she also remained faithful. She was a devout Anglican for her entire life, although that life was too short. And just last week, we read the story of the visitation, which involves a cousin named Elizabeth, a pregnant Mary escaping the prying eyes of the people of Nazareth, and a moral that reminds us that joy and love are human and divine forces like no other. And Austin's works are firmly rooted in this kind of joy and love. Even the teasing of her satire comes from the love that she has for people and the joy she takes in life, even with all the failures of people and all the disappointments of life. So do you think that might be partly why we read Austin so ardently so many years later, because she captured these tensions that lie at the foundation of so many of our religious yearnings? You know, it's funny when you were describing the visitation, I was thinking it sounds like a Jane Austen novel, you know, where the 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 pregnant cousin leaves town in order to see the older woman and they have a meeting. I mean, it would take place in Jane Austen, it would take place in a drawing room, obviously, you know, not, <laughs> yes. not in the hill country of Judea. It, it is a great question. Why do we read her and why can we read her over and over and over and still find something? Well, first of all, I think she, because she was brilliant. I think that's the first reason. She, she's brilliant. And she has this tremendous ability to portray people who seem like they're real, like you can, you would meet them, maybe not today, because they're so mannered and polite, <laughs> but that they're real and they're, they're full-blown characters. I also think, you know, we, we can't, and I'm, I'm sure you don't, you know, we can't underestimate the value of plot. I mean, she, she tells a good story. It's interesting. You, it's not just character-driven. 
I was talking to someone last night. This is a bit of a tangent about the movie. I'm not going to have a spoiler called The Power, Power of the Dog that just came out, which is another Jane, Jane Campion. And one of the Jesuits I live with said there wasn't much of a plot. It was all character driven. Okay. Now the characters were really beautifully portrayed, but in Jane Austen, there's, there's a plot. You, you want to know what happens at the end of the story. But I think it is primarily her, this is not original to me. I think it's her powers of observation too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a, one of the most powerful scenes in literature. And forgive me for not knowing this, this book, you will know it immediately. Is it in Emma where she inadvertently insults someone at, at that picnic? Do you remember that? Yes. that? yes. Yeah. Emma is with one of her suitors at a picnic. And one of her friends is, kind of, as, as is often the case in, in Jane Austen, there's a friend who's a bit of a kind of a ninny, but well-meaning. I forget her name. And Emma insults her pretty, I would say, publicly and clearly. You know, she talk, I think she mentioned something about her speaking too, too much. And it's, you know, I've seen it in the film and I went back and I read it and it's just so heartbreaking. Because I mean, I, I, I get, I get emotional thinking about it because it's, it's taking someone who's really, she's, she's unwedded, which of course in Jane Austen's time is like, you know, the worst thing ever. And she is, um, she's just completely humiliated and she's, she's kind of tongue tied. When I read that, and I think I saw the film first with Gwyneth Paltrow, I just thought now here is someone who understands human nature and here is something very small you know, being insulted and being humiliated by someone who is kind of, you know, more quote unquote, higher up or, or more powerful. And the way she portrays it in the book and the way she portrays it on film is just so intelligent and real. And I don't think you can do that without being brilliant. And also without having, as you say, without having a real love for not only your characters, but for people in general. Well, that point that you make about her skills of observation, I mean, observation, this is, you know, others have said this, but observation or attention is a kind of love. You have to love something to pay attention to it. Do you remember that line from uh, the film Lady Bird? Have you seen that film, Lady Bird? I have. There's a line where I'm happy to say that a Catholic sister says towards the end to Cersei Ronan's character, she was writing about Sacramento. And she said, you really love this place. I'm paraphrasing. And she said, no, I just like pay attention. And she says, isn't that the same thing? Which is really sweet. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, Jane Austen obviously pays attention. And one of the things I love about her is, um, and maybe you can answer this question, how popular was she in her time? Was she this sort of raging success? She actually was not a raging success. It took decades for her to become what she is today. There were circles of people who read her and admired her. She was admired within a small circle, but I mean, her first novels were published without her name. Her brother had to pay for for Sense and Sensibility to be published, the first novel that she had published. And so she was just a brilliant writer in a modest circle who achieved modest reputation, Mm. but really wasn't discovered by the world until much later. And of course, didn't really take off really until the 20th century and film came along. Well, how common were women novelists back then? Women novelists comprised most novelists. Novels were seen as a very feminine genre because they were written in in prose and everyday language about everyday subjects. And so it took a long time actually Mm. for all novels and women novelists to overcome that kind of Mm. prejudice and sexism. They were seen as inferior. So that's a whole long, interesting history. Well, one of the reasons I'm asking, that's so interesting, is that I often think of people like Jane Austen and you brought her up, Emily Dickinson. 
as doing these things, you know, not exactly in secret. Well, I mean, Dickinson probably much more secretively. And I always love this image of, and of them, you know, Jane Austen going to a party and kind of observing yes. and Emily Dickinson being, you know, in her house and in Amherst, you know, kind of observing and taking these things in and people around them probably being largely a lot of them oblivious to their powers of observation and what was going on. It's just, it's fascinating to me to think of a mind like that, that is not known. And that is just kind of quietly observing. It's just, it, I find that really fascinating. And that she could be, both of them could be turning out these great works of art kind of in a hidden way. And such a contrast, which kind of helps lead to my final question for you, is a contrast really between the way that we tend to observe and communicate today. So much of us out like in the open on social media and not quietly. We're very quick with our hot takes, you know, myself included. (laughs) I think it's hard to resist that. But Austin's signature gentle social satire seems so fundamentally at odds with today's hot take culture, which likes its content in bold, definitive colors. And our criticisms often seem more rooted in vengeance and fear and spite rather than the kind of love and joy that we just talked about in Austin. So how do you, this is a big question, but how do you think we can re-enchant our discussions and even our disagreements and our criticisms of morality, society, religion, and even what it means to be human. That's, I mean, that's what Austin was doing. But in other words, how can we love the Mr. Collins in our own worlds, even as we try to correct him as Jane Austen did? One thing I would say though, is that as you know, better than I do, you know, her world had its, had its share of snubs and people cutting someone dead, as they would say. And, you know, certain social cues that, you know, you wouldn't go to a particular party or a person wears the wrong thing and they're, they're cut dead, right? Or they're, they're, or they're removed from a social circle because of some, you know, some sort of scandal, right? So I think there were ways back then. I mean, even Elizabeth was mocked by the other women for um, having muddy petticoats when she walked two miles to their house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there are ways, I think, that, you know, we might be more forgiving now, you know, of people. But I think... I think the answer is is contained in the first thing we talked about, which is that part of it is observing people and being compassionate to people. And even though Jane Austen might be censorious of uh, Reverend Collins, I think in a way she still loves him because she still portrays him as a real person and, and, and a complete person. And so part of it is really getting to know people, being compassionate. And, um, you know, that old saying, which I think about a lot, you know, be kind to people, everyone's fighting a battle. And so I think that particularly on social media, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to understand that they're fighting their own battles. And I think also, and this is actually something that I think we can, we can learn from Jane Austen, uh, to try to be, this is a word we don't use very much, try to be polite, mm. right? Try to be gentle and polite and not insulting. I think uh, one of the things I like about her literature is that when, even when, when, when a well-meaning character has to say something critical, it's usually very gentle. <laughs> very mannerly. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, I can't quote something, but, you know, one might hope that when one goes to their house, one would not find the same kind of inhospitable reception that one tends to find elsewhere, you know, that kind of stuff. And you just say, that's brilliant. I think, but, you know, Jane Austen's characters also have the benefit of being able to speak in beautiful, fully formed sentences. 
right? And when a lot of times they sort of spill out from us. And there was also a kind of, and I'm assuming that, you know, we can say that this reflects her society. There was a kind of reserve. People, it seems, you know, were much more careful about what they said, because again, it could, it could ruin them. And so I think being a little bit more reserved and being more thoughtful before one opens one's mouth is helpful. But overall, I think observation, compassion, charity, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Just like Jane Austen did. Just like Jane Austen did. You know, it's so funny. I, I really get a chance to talk about literature. It's all church stuff. So it's such a, it's so refreshing. I go back to that, those, you know, not only Collins, but that scene for me is one of the most powerful scenes in literature of, of her portraying cruelty, compassion, hurt feelings. And when that character, when Emma opens her mouth, she says it without thinking. And I think that's a lesson mm-hmm. for us all. I mean, that might be a good, a good parable for social media. You don't know who you're hurting and right. you think you're being, you think you're being clever and you're just being mean. You know, I was watching a, an episode of Downton Abbey the other night and uh, Lord Grantham, who's Hugh Bonneville, says to uh, Maggie Smith, who plays the Dowager Countess, something about um, someone being not particularly clever. And uh, he says, well, we can't all be Oscar Wilde. And she says, thank God for that. <laughs> so we, we, you know, I mean, sort of to, to be cutting people down all the time and, you know, it's not a good way to go. A true wit is one who loves as well. Yeah. And I think that we, we t- again, I use this a lot. I, I think a lot of us tend to think that we're being like Oscar Wilde when we're just being mean. I think that's so insightful and a good test for all of us to consider. Well, this has been just delightful and you've offered so much wisdom to me. I, I, I never run out of things to learn from Jane Austen and from those who read and love her. So I'm so appreciative of your taking this time and offering these insights. Well, my pleasure. And thank you for a wonderful conversation. And thank you, I have to say, for some brilliant questions. Thank you very much, Jane Austen. Jane Austen would be proud of you. Oh, well, well, thank you. We all have flaws. Some flaws are worse than others, of course, and some flaws are more than that. They are evil. To use the neoclassical terms that would have been familiar to Jane Austen, this is the difference between folly and vice. Both need correction, but the cures may be different. And correcting communities, institutions, or structures that have vice built in, well, that's the hardest change of all. As a Catholic priest, Father Martin knows that well. As a Southern Baptist Christian, I know it too. And as a Christian herself, Jane Austen knew it. In the only way she could, in the only way she knew how, Jane Austen aimed in her gentle satire to correct the vices and follies of her world. And correcting communities, institutions, or structures that have vice built in, well, That's the hardest change of all. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.